0: Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a congregation, a HaVas Torah initiative. Today, we are exploring the second parak of Melachim Bet, which is a difficult parak to understand. Uh, it's somewhat cryptic and mysterious. It's a mystical perech, but we'll do our best to try and extract from it as much as we can, and there is quite a bit that we can understand. The parak opens by telling us that this was the, the moment, It came to pass when the Lord would take Eliyahu by a whirlwind into heaven. So this parak, we know, is going to be our farewell to Eliyahu. However, the parak is really more focused on Elisha than Eliyahu, as I will demonstrate. In some ways, this parak is really, uh, in the same way that uh, we saw Eliyahu go through a series of tests during the years of famine, uh, through which he is transformed into this very powerful prophet capable of taking on Ahav. This parak, likewise, is a transformative parak in which we see Elisha emerge as this incredible force to be reckoned with, this very, very powerful prophet. After telling us, as I noted this introduction, that this is going to be the parak where Eliyahu was taken away, so we are told that Elisha is walking together with Eliyahu from Gilgal. And Eliyahu tells him to stay in Gilgal because Hashem has sent him, has sent Eliyahu to Beit El. But Elisha refuses and he goes with him. As they approach Beit El, a group of young prophets come and approach Elisha and they tell him that today is the day, don't you know, today is the day that uh, Hashem is going to take Eliyahu, he's going to take your master from upon you, he's going to take him from this world. Apparently this was widely known. And Elisha responds to them by telling them to be quiet. What do we make of this exchange? It's it's really not so clear. Uh, I have a thought, but let's hold off on that for now, because this exact scene is going to play out yet again. They arrive in Beit El, and then Eliyahu once again turns to Elisha, and he tells him to stay in Beit El, because Hashem has commanded him, has commanded Eliyahu, to go to Yericho. But Elisha once again refuses, and he says that he will absolutely not uh, stay back, and he's going to accompany Eliyahu to Yericho. Once again, as they approach Yericho, the young prophets of the town come out to Elisha, and they say, don't you know that Eliyahu will be taken from this world today? And again, Elisha silences them. Once they are there, again, Eliyahu turns to Elisha and says, you stay here in Yericho because Hashem has sent me to go to the Yardin. And once again, Elisha refuses, and he accompanies him to the Yardin. Now, if we pause here, we can ask, Why is Eliyahu commanded to make all of these different stops? Was it some sort of farewell tour? Was he delivering a major sermon at each of these cities? It's certainly noteworthy that all these cities were of great significance in the initial stages of the conquest of Canaan and Sefer Yehoshua. Gilgal, certainly Yerichau, the Yardin, Beit El likewise plays into the the narrative uh, surrounding the conquest of Ai. And it's a significance that becomes even sharper once we... See, as we will in a moment, that Eliyahu and then Elisha split the Yardin, a moment that, of course, evokes the splitting of the Yardin in the time of Yehoshua. So there's there's certainly intrinsic significance to this journey that Eliyahu himself is taking from Gilgal to Beit El to Yericho to the Yardin. But from the text's perspective, in terms of the textual focus in retelling this story, uh, it's it's important to note that the focus is really on Elisha. It's really about when Elisha is being discouraged from following Eliyahu, he clings to Eliyahu and he is not discouraged and he follows him continually on this track. And so it's clearly about uh, a kind of test for Elisha that we, will he listen to Eliyahu's uh, words, will he stay back or will he, you know, in, in his absolute determination and his loyalty continue to cling to Eliyahu? And of course, we see that Elisha passes that test. So if we understand this beginning part of the parak as a series of tests for Elisha to see if he will continue to maintain this kind of loyalty, so perhaps we can understand the exchange that he has with the Bnei neviim, with these young prophets, in the same way. They're telling Elisha, today is the day that Hashem is going to take your master, May Al-Roshacha, is the language they use, from above your head. Meaning, Elisha, today's the day that you become the new sheriff, you're becoming the boss, you're becoming the head, uh, the head prophet. He's being taken, May al your, your master is being taken from above you. You are going to be the new kind of chief prophet, let's let's say. And maybe it's kind of tempting for Alicia to stop following Eliyahu around and for him to start exercising his own leadership, right? It's inevitable. Today's the day you become the boss, right? And so he is, he, he's effectively already at this point not Eliyahu's apprentice anymore. And Alicia, we could say, you know, kind of uh, to use a a contemporary type of example, maybe he would start already moving his things into the big corner office and and the people are encouraging him to do that, right? Today's the day, Alicia, that you're going to become the boss. And what's his response to them? It's a response that reflects complete devotion to Eliyahu. He silences these people. He says, be quiet. And so I think that this exchange kind of uh, reinforces the thrust of the first half of the parak which points to the fact that Elisha is passing this test with flying colors and maintaining absolute devotion to Eliyahu uh, until the very end. The two Neviim then travel from Yericho to the Yardin. Eliyahu splits the Yardin and they cross over, at which point Eliyahu asks Elisha if he has any last requests from him. And Elisha asks for a double inheritance of Eliyahu's prophetic abilities, like the biblical rite of the firstborn to Pishnayim, Elisha wants a double portion of Eliyahu's power. He wants to have um, a, at least a, a a good amount of whatever it was that that Eliyahu had, that Eliyahu Hanavi had. And Eliyahu Hanavi responds that he's not that that you've asked for something. Your request is a hard one for me to honor, and it's contingent on whether or not you will see what happens to me. What is that? Right. The pasuk says, me itach." If you will see. Where I am taken from you, Yihila then it shall be to you. You'll get your request of whatever it means to have this kind of double portion of Eliyahu's powers. but ayin, and if you don't see loiya, then it shall not be. So Eliyahu at this point is unsure whether Elisha is somehow fit to receive his requested share of Eliyahu's powers. Um, And I think that this response, this exchange, which is, of course, very cryptic, but it also tells us a few things. Firstly, it tells us the fact that uh, uh, Elisha seeing Eliyahu in his final moments is critical to his inheriting Eliyahu's power, so to speak, which affirms the idea that the previous stops along the way, where Eliyahu was trying to discourage Elisha from following him, it was absolutely a test. Because if Elisha had stayed in Gilgal, if he had stayed in Betel, if he had stayed in Yerichel, so he wouldn't be there to see this happen. And so it's obvious that him having clung to Eliyahu until this point uh, was critical, but there's another important factor here, uh, another important detail that emerges, and that is that even though he was standing with Eliyahu at this moment, it was not, it was still not a matter of certainty that he would be able to see what happened to Eliyahu. We'll explain more in a moment. What what, what then happens? What unfolds next is this very famous scene with the flaming chariot and this horse, also aflame, uh, appearing and taking Eliyahu. Eliyahu boards this chariot, and it carries him up to the heavens in a whirlwind. So that's kind of strange, right? Which, Well, which one is it? Was it a chariot of fire that carries him away, or was it a whirlwind that carried him away, right? The first pasuk of our parak said that he was carried up by a whirlwind. So was it the chariot? Was it the whirlwind? And it's clear that it's really both, and it's a key point. Elisha, we know from his reaction— saw the flaming chariot carrying Eliyahu to the heavens. But there were also other onlookers who, when they saw it, only saw this whirlwind. Uh, They were left with the impression that Eliyahu was just kind of blown away by a kind of tornado. And in fact, after this is over, they will go to Elisha and they're going to say to him, let's send out a search party to try and find Eliyahu. Maybe he's on a mountaintop, maybe he's in a valley, maybe we can find him. And Elisha knows He tells them, it's for naught. You're not going to be able to find him. Why? Because Elisha uniquely saw the flaming chariot, meaning they were both. To the objective onlooker, uh, it was a wind that blew Eliyahu away, but Elisha was uh, at a level where he could see the the true kind of, I'd say the spiritual reality, which was that there was this kind of flaming chariot that carried Eliyahu away. And that's why he knows that their efforts to try and locate Eliyahu are not going to be successful. So already, we kind of see that this is an affirmation of the fact to us that Elisha was on, a certain, on such a high level at this moment, had passed all the requisite tests, he could see the, the, the spiritual reality, he could see the flaming chariot, and we're, we kind of have this affirmation that he is the right person to fill Eliyahu's shoes and that he will have been endowed with a great measure of Eliyahu's powers. But that's obviously not enough. Because the duration of the parak deals with three, perhaps even four more steps, which are going to be a progression uh, of, of Elisha continuing to kind of transform into uh, a prophet that is, now, that is ready to now confront Ahab. Again, this is very similar to the way that Eliyahu had these transformative steps, these miracles that had to occur before he was ready to confront Ahav. So we have a similar progression now for, for Elisha. First, following exactly on Eliyahu's actions, following his example, Elisha splits the Yardin to cross back into the mainland of Canaan, a clear display of his new power, a clear display of his uh, being kind of parallel to Eliyahu. He then arrives back in Yerika, where the people complain that their water is not drinkable, and Elisha here performs a miracle, he asks for salt, and he puts it into the water, and he restores the water to being drinkable once more. And this is a moment which is, of course, extremely parallel to Bnei Yisrael, after they cross the Yam Suf, just like Elisha like has now crossed this Yardin after splitting the Yardin, the Bnei Yisrael, after they cross the Yamsuf, Suf, they arrive at Marah, and the water is undrinkable, and Moshe casts a, um, a branch into the water, which causes it to become drinkable once more, here too. Elisha crosses the Yardin and then uh, encounters un- undrinkable water and again miraculously places something in the water which makes it drinkable. So this episode equates Elisha to the power of Moshe Rabbeinu. He then goes from Yericho back to Beit El. So this is exactly retracing the footsteps We went from Yardin to Yericho, now back to Beit El, re- retracing Eliyahu's footsteps on the journey that Elisha uh, had accompanied him on. And on his way, he's a, a co- he is confronted by a group of children who come and they mock him and they call him bald. Um, perhaps this they pick on this unique detail because it's a, a kind of a contrast to Eliyahu, who we were told were, was this very hairy person. So maybe they're kind of picking on him, not just as a, a superficial external characteristic, but they're picking on the fact that he's, he's not the man Eliyahu was. In any event, Eliyahu curses these kids and a bear comes and kills 42 of them. This, of course, is quite hard for us to palette, and time doesn't permit a more thoroughgoing treatment uh, of this moment. It's certainly unsettling, but for our purposes, suffice it to say that the text does not seem to paint this in a negative light. It seems to just be another display of Alicia's incredible power at this moment, power that is very comparable to Eliyahu's power, and that's a power that was often used in a in a. In a to harm other, to harm others, just practically speaking, um, whether it was right or wrong, it seems like the text here is saying that he did it correctly. That this that there was nothing problematic about it. Now, that doesn't sit so well with us. But again, as I said, time doesn't permit a more thoughtful treatment of of why this would have been an acceptable act. Suffice it to say, as I said, the text does not seem to paint this in a negative light. We would expect his next stop to be at Gilgal. That would be the full coming full circle, arriving at the place from where he had departed initially with Eliyahu, but instead he goes to Har HaKarmel. Going to Har HaKarmel is so obviously meant to drive home the point that he has fully taken on the mantle of Eliyahu, who of course made his greatest and most important stand at that very place. And then after Har HaKarmel, Finally, after this kind of amazing and somewhat mystifying Perek, it, it comes to a, a close with Elisha arriving at Shomron, the seat of power, the capital of the Northern Kingdom. Now, Elisha has truly arrived, and he is ready to take on the wicked monarchy. That's it for today. Chazak Emats and happy learning.